So there's this book by a guy named Chap Clark. Molly and Chase have read it. I don't know if any of you else have read it. It's called Hurt. Uh, Chap Clark is a professor of youth ministry. He's on staff with Young Life. When he did the, the research that resulted in this book called Hurt, which is really a study about adolescence and how now we have three stages of adolescence and implications for it really basically his point in every chapter in that book is if you didn't go to high school in the last few years and you think you know what high school is like, you don't really know what it's like. And it's, it's particularly sobering to me when every chapter you read that and you're like, gosh, this guy should have known because he's got three high school sons. He works with Young Life, which I think is a, a very excellent ministry in working with teenagers, um, one that I owe a lot of my spiritual growth to from my high school years. And, um, and he's a professor of youth ministry. And yet every chapter he says, basically, I thought I understood the youth culture with regard to this particular topic, but I really had no idea. And then you get to this chapter on sex. And I, I know this is kind of a long quote, but I thought it would set the stage for what we're going to talk about tonight well. So follow with me, if you will. He says this, soon after I began this study, and this is basically kind of his research, his study of high school students, I became aware that the adolescent world is not as saturated with sex as it is infused with palpable loneliness. I was surprised to realize that for most mid-adolescents, the issue of sex has lost its mystique and has become almost commonplace. They've been conditioned to expect so much from sex and have been tainted by overexposure and the emptiness of valueless sexual banter and play that they've become laissez-faire in their attitudes and even jaded. As one student told me, sex is a game and a toy, nothing more. As I was to find out, it's also more than that. It's a temporary salve from the pain and loneliness resulting from abandonment. And that's one of the theses in his book is that the youth have in large ways been abandoned by adults, significant adults, and thus have kind of created their own subculture in a lot of ways. He says, massive shifts in thinking about sexuality have occurred in our culture over the past several decades. The definition of sex is now limited to the technicality of intercourse in the minds of most students. Holding an appreciation for sex as the wonder and mystery of the intersection of bodies, minds, and hearts is but a distant and rapidly fading memory. Will this generation be able to understand the power of love that gives sacredness to a physical act. As I listened to students talk about how they felt about love and romance and how these related to sexuality, I had difficulty finding any who could make that connection. The hope I carry is that the pendulum has swung so far, or as far as it can go, in thinking about sex as a toy, and that it will be brought back to the center by generations who have seen how devastatingly empty that world can be. Ooh, it's very sobering. And I know that as I stand here, that there are people who know the emptiness of that more than others, but every one of us has been touched by it. Sex is a powerful, powerful thing, a wonderful gift but it's been distorted and misused in so many ways, it's hard to even know what we're saying with it anymore. 
So we need to see what God has to say. And you know, what's tragic is not only are we told all kinds of lies about sex from the culture, but even the church tends to not speak very well about this issue, if they speak at all. Uh, a while back, there was an issue of Youth Worker Journal, which is a you know, magazine professional journal for people that are professional youth ministers. And there was an article there written by a particular youth pastor about masturbation. And we're going to talk more about that next week, all right, not tonight. Um, and he talked in there about why he thought it was fine and okay for students to involve themselves in. And what was really discouraging to me reading that article was he said nothing about the purpose of sex. His approach was basically to look, where was there a rule in the Bible about it? Well, if not, then that's all we can say. Now, the good thing is the next issue, basically they got so many letters from youth pastors who were discouraged like I was, that the meaning of sex and the Bible talks about it was never brought into the discussion, that they basically printed the whole next issue were all of the letters that people wrote to them. And that encouraged me. But honestly, for far too many people, when they, if they've grown up in a church, a lot of the teaching that you've gotten about sex, if you've got any at all, had to do with setting limits and rules and what you can't do. And that is another distortion of what the biblical Christian teaching about sex is all about. So what we're going to do tonight is basically talk about various lies that we've been told by the church and the culture about sex. We're going to talk a little bit about the purpose, as the Bible would talk about it. We're going to expand that uh, some more next week and then talk about some of the practical implications as well next week. All right? So let's dive in. Countering the lies we've been told. The first is the lie that sex is dirty. It, it is an interesting thing, you know, when you counsel people who are going to get married, um, you know, often have not had sex. Sometimes they have, or one or more of the people have had. Um, it, it is a weird thing if you've never had sex, particularly if you've grown up in Christian settings. So you're basically like trying to obey what the Bible says about sex and not have sex before you're married. Uh, to all of a sudden go through a ceremony, say some words, walk out of a church, and now everything that you've been telling yourself you're not allowed to do, all of a sudden you can do it. It's a weird shift. And part of the reason is because one of the ways that we try to keep ourselves from having sex in the church and try to keep our kids from having sex in the church is basically say, it's bad. You're not supposed to do it. Don't even think about it, right? Which is not what the Bible has to say about sex. Uh, many people, I think, are kind of surprised at how pro-sex the Bible really is. As a matter of fact, um, a lot of the lines from that last hymn that we sang, um, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, are taken from a book in the Old Testament called The Song of Solomon. Now, I know that Samuel Rutherford and many in his day thought that the best way to understand the Song of Solomon, or sometimes called the Song of Songs, is to understand it as a love poem about Christ and his church. But before it's that, it's a love poem, a somewhat erotic love poem. And it's pretty interesting that the Bible has an entire book devoted to that, isn't it? Uh, it would surprise a lot of people. It would surprise a lot of people, for instance, that the Puritans in New England at one point disciplined a man for not having enough sex with his wife. You'd be surprised to know that, I suspect. Because most of what you've ever heard from the church or been told about the church is that sex is bad. 
But as a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and if you look at your passages, um, we're going to look at this passage first, Paul actually goes so far, the Apostle Paul, um, supposed proved that he is, goes so far as to say it's a doctrine of demons to teach people that sex is bad. And not only were there religious people teaching that, there were a lot of um, people who were Greek in their religion who were teaching this sort of thing. You know, Plato taught that the body and bodily enjoyment was somehow less than pure spiritual enjoyment. And a lot of Christians got influenced by that. But that was never the Judaic understanding of sex, and it was not the Christian idea of sex either. And so Paul is having to counter that sort of idea that's seeping into Christian circles. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. See where I am? It's on the back of the announcements, the top, top passage there. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. This is what they teach. It's so horrible. They forbid people to marry and to order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For, because, this is why it's so bad, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now that last verse, some people have misunderstood and thought, well, as long as you can find a verse in the Bible saying this thing is good, well, then it's okay to do it. No, it's actually a reference to the creation story where God looked at the world he made and he said it was good. God invented sex and he didn't have to create sex to be enjoyable. He didn't but he did. And then he goes so far, as we looked at last week in talking about marriage, he goes so far as to say, this is the best picture I can give you of what my love is like. So, the, you know, it's a doctrine of demons, the Bible says, to teach that sex is bad or an inherently non-spiritual thing. God does not blush when married people have sex. He's thrilled. He invented it. He created it to teach us about his love. And too often, I think, Christian children never get that idea because Christian people are too often embarrassed to talk about it. I know whenever I talk about sex, people don't want to look me in the eye. I, I've, I've always found it so kind of fun to talk about sex, especially to use the word masturbation and just see everybody kind of look down at the ground. And gosh, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Um, so that's the first lie, that sex is dirty. The second lie is that sex is just a biological function. And if we want to look at this issue, right? And again, this was, you know, in Paul's day, there was the Greek idea that the body was bad and that the ultimate goal was to be set free from our bodily prison and just be sort of this pure spirit and sexual urges and whatnot were not regarded as helpful to you spiritually attaining um, ecstasy and salvation, all that good stuff that you wanted. On the other hand, there were people who said that sex was just a biological function. Even beyond that, it was the way to connect with the divine. Because in Paul's day, you see, temple prostitution was a very popular thing. Imagine this for a church growth technique. When you come to worship, you get to have sex with a prostitute for free. 
And you read in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, that was still a big problem for those people, as you might expect. Because, you know, you could go have sex with prostitutes for free, or you could come hang out with the Christians, sing some songs, and pray. You know? So it was still a big issue, right? Because sex isn't just a biological function. There's something more to it. And Paul talks about that in this 1 Corinthians passage, chapter 6. And it's, again, on your outline. Look what he says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and then he quotes Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, a man or a woman, it's gender neutral here, commits are outside his body, but he who sexually sins, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, some of you may have heard Steve Garber when he came and spoke at Belmont recently. He told me one time that he thinks really the rubber where the rubber meets the road for college students today with regard to whether Christianity is very serious to you or you take it very seriously is, does God have a right, in your opinion, to tell you what you can do with your body? He said that is about the most countercultural thing that Christianity says in your cultural context. And it really is true. Um, What Paul's saying here, I know people say, well, sin is sin, all sin is the same. That's actually not taught in the Bible. All sin is worthy of condemnation. But the Bible never says that all sin is exactly the same. As a matter of fact, in the passage I just read, he distinguishes sexual sin and says it's different than other sins because it unites you. There's a uniting that happens because God created sex as a way for you to say, I belong to you and you belong to me. And when you use that with somebody that you're not willing to stand before God and these witnesses and say that to, you're saying it anyway. And it's happening anyway. It's not just a biological thing. And we know that, don't we? We know in our hearts that sex is different than eating. Right? I mean, I don't know anybody that spends hours looking at pictures of hamburgers and french fries on the internet. Do you? No. So come on, we know that it's something more than that. We know that. The next lie, that sex is a private matter. And this comes up a lot in debates and discussions, particularly, you know, people want to talk about you can't legislate morality. Listen, that's one of the silliest things you'll ever hear somebody say. All laws express an idea of human flourishing and flow out of a worldview of what it means to be human and what it means to live the good life. Of course, morality is expressed in our laws. And also, along with that, sex is never a private matter. People may say, well, what business is in anybody else? What goes on in our bedroom? And the fact is, whether you like it or not, no man is an island. And sex and the effects of sex impact a community. They do. Absolutely. Tim Keller says this way, the idea that what we do in the privacy of our own home is our own business is untrue from nearly every perspective. It's untrue from the medical and economic perspectives. There is a cost to the spread of disease 
and the spread of heartache, economic and socially. And it's untrue from the social perspective. The Commission on Children at Risk pointed out in a study a few years ago called Hardwired to Connect that, quote, children pay a terrible toll the result of the societal shift from seeing sex as a way to build a stable community, which is the way it used to be seen, to seeing it as an individual means of personal fulfillment. Don't tell me that that shift hasn't affected even people who aren't having sex, because it absolutely has, and it's affected every person in this room. To counter that kind of modernistic idea, which is a really foolish idea, that you can be personal and private and not affect any people and act like you don't live in a community, uh, I would offer up this wisdom from Wendell Berry. Sex is a nurturing discipline which uniquely creates joy, tenderness, and long-term unity between two people for the purpose of creating the very long-term, stable, nurturing households, which are the only safe place for children to grow and flourish. You know, the idea that, that children and, and mothers are not given special protection in the law in our culture is a recent phenomenon, and it's had devastating effects. It's this, it's this amazing thing that as a society we shifted without any empirical research or any, it was just sort of an, sort of an idea. And, and the effects have been devastating. Sex is not just a private matter. The next one, sex can be made safe and free. And of course this is why this, you know, so many of these issues are so politically charged because we live in a culture which says that individual freedom is the highest goal. I don't think it's coincidental then that the longing for community is one of our deepest cries and why loneliness is regularly cited as one of our deepest societal problems. Because you can't have absolute individual freedom and have community. The two always destroy each other. They too. You can't be free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and still have meaningful relationships and connections with people. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the advocate, uh, you know, the, the, the advocacy of the birth control pill, abortion rights, all these things are connected to sex without consequences and trying to eliminate, trying to eliminate the God-ordained consequences. Now, I, as a Protestant, don't agree with the Catholic idea. Catholic Church teaches that um, the purpose of sex is the propagation of the human race, to have children. Therefore, the Catholic Church is opposed to birth control. The Protestant view is that sex has a threefold purpose. It's for propagating the race. It's for fun. Recreation, it's fun. It's a good gift that God gave us, and it's for bonding. It's covenant cement, right? So you don't have to have children for sex to be proper and appropriate. But that's very different than saying that we should, as a society, create a world in which we can try to remove any of the consequences from sex. It's, it's, it's not a helpful thing. Sex always comes with consequences. God created sex as a way to say to another person, I'm yours. So is it any wonder that when people use it to say something else, 
They crave authenticity and community more than anything else. And this is the whole, you know, I don't know how much the hookup culture is a part of Belmont. I hear different things from different people. It seems there's different pockets of it. Um, you know, at some university, it's the idea that we can still have sex, but we can basically just hook up with people, and therefore there's no relational entanglement. But you and I know that it doesn't really work that way, right? We all know about the walk of shame. <laughs> and, you know, all that sorts of stuff is, is real. There's something to that kind of stuff. Right? And we, can, we make jokes about it basically to try and rewrite what God's meaning is. You know, this is the way Christians understand the world. God spoke the creation into being. Therefore, the whole creation is stamped with meaning. And you can try and rewrite the meaning, and we do all the time. And a lot of what culture is is trying to rewrite the meaning. But God's meaning keeps pushing through. So sometimes we make jokes or we try to call things differently. We try and label things differently. But God's meaning keeps breaking through. Last one. Uh, actually, no, two more lies and then some gospel. How about that? Um, porn won't hurt you. Actually, three lies, sorry, now that I turn this over. Porn won't hurt you. I'm going to say more about this, but for now I'll just um, read you this quote. This is from Naomi Wolf. Do you know Naomi Wolf? You, people used to always read her book, The Beauty Myth. Um, she's a feminist who actually I heard had recently gotten converted. She wrote this article called The Porn Myth. It's worth finding. Um, she wrote this. She wasn't a Christian when she wrote this, but I think these words are very powerful. She says, at a benefit the other night, I saw Andrea Dworkin, the anti-porn activist most famous in the 80s, for her conviction that opening the floodgates of pornography would lead men to see real women in sexually debased ways. If we did not limit pornography, she argued, before internet technology made that prospect a technical impossibility. Most men would come to objectify women as they objectified porn stars and treat them accordingly. In a kind of domino theory, she predicted rape and other kinds of sexual mayhem would surely follow. So was she right or wrong? She was right about the warning, wrong about the outcome. As she foretold, pornography did breach the dike that separated a marginal adult private pursuit from the mainstream public arena. The whole world post-internet did become pornographized. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training. And this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making men into raving beasts. On the contrary... The onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as quote-unquote porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, their attention. Ooh. I think that's powerful. And so tragic. So tragic. We'll talk more about that. But don't believe that porn won't hurt you. It affects the way you see other people, contributes to a huge economic enterprise that literally enslaves thousands of people. It's not a private affair either. The other lie, that sex equals love. And of course, this is rampant in our culture. Just think of the term making love. And even trace out how that changed from sex to making love and the way that word love has changed and been debased and equated 
Sex and love are equated in Western culture, particularly our Western culture, and romance has become an idol. I'm not saying that all romance is bad, but for too many people, I think they're in love with the idea of love more than they are with actual real people. Even the idea of falling in love is really kind of an interesting concept when you think about it. And I'll just say this. The Puritans, the Puritans used, to, used to say that they would marry in order to fall in love. And when I bring that up to people today, they think that's crazy, right? Or the idea of arranged marriages, that people could have real love develop in an arranged marriage. Most people think that's just so crazy. And all I would say is defend your opinion from Scripture, It's worth pondering. It's worth pondering. Um, I, I think there really is, um, I think there is a, an appropriate place for romance, but to equate sex and love is a terrible mistake and leads to lots of confusion in so many ways. And then finally, G. Sex is what you're made for. And you might say, well, that seems like what you're saying. Not exactly. Sex is a signpost pointing to what you're made for, but it's not ultimately what you're made for. And I know that this is a lie people believe because whenever you talk to single people, and I was single until I was 33, so I had this view myself for a long time, I want Jesus to come back again, only I want to get married and have sex first. And I can't imagine heaven being heaven if people aren't married. You know, Jesus at one point says that people aren't um, married in heaven. And many people are like scratching their heads like, how can that be? All I could say is, the reason this is so is because sex and the enjoyment and the ecstasy of sex is actually pointing you to something. It's not the ultimate. It's pointing to an experience of being known, fully known, and fully loved that sex in its greatest uh, experience can only point at. And I think that it's hard to get our minds around that. But it's, it's really true. All right, so with all that said, let, let me just give you a little gospel to end this. Let's look at this passage. It's, I actually put this one in the outline. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. I just love this passage. Whenever I've tried to preach on 1 Peter, I end up doing like eight or nine sermons out of the first chapter. I can't get past the first chapter. And then people are like, all right, we're ready. Let's do another book. So, um, but yet I still keep coming back to this passage. It's so great. Because here's the thing, like after I read all that stuff, you know, like gosh, who here, you know, is without guilt and can cast the first stone, so to speak, right? Everybody has misused sex to one degree or another. All of us have brokenness and baggage. It's inevitable. We live in a broken world and we're broken people. But what, is, what, what do we do with that? Do we just throw up our hands in despair and, and often this is what happens with sexual addiction and pornography. Um, it, it's so soul-deadening that then we just, it's sort of this vicious cycle. Then we just like, well, who cares? Anyway, you're so full of shame and self-loathing that you just, you know, keep on it. We'll talk more about that next week because there's a whole lot of stuff to talk about with regard to that. But here's the thing. Whether you think you've kept yourself relatively pure sexually or whether you know that you're nowhere near that, the gospel is bigger than that. Martin Luther said one time, you know, that, that Jesus was very much in earnest when he went to the cross. 
and he suffered a torturous death. And there's nothing beyond the scope of what his death paid for. Nothing. Nothing that you've done, nothing that you're doing now. And the only way I know to try to convince you of that is to read from the gospel truth, God's word, 1 Peter 3. Praise be, sorry, 1-3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me say a couple things. The gospel comes to those who need great mercy. I need great mercy. You need great mercy. Praise God that in His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Do you see? It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. It doesn't say, praise God that He's offered us away. It says, no, He's given us new birth. Given us new birth. So if you feel like I'm dead inside and I can't change in any sort of way, I have no hope, I'm full of shame, praise God in his great mercy, he's given us new birth. He's literally remade you. Second Corinthians says, behold, the past is gone and all things are new. What does that mean? How big is that? And he's given us a new birth into a living hope that cannot perish. Why? Because it's based on the righteousness of another. He talks about how we have this inheritance that's kept in heaven where it can never perish, spoil, or fade. The way I like to explain it is what God thinks of you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your hope in Jesus, God looks at you and he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And what God thinks about you is based upon something that exists in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. Isn't that good to know? That your righteousness, which is basically to say your beauty that comes from doing everything that God has asked, if you're in Christ, you have that beauty. It covers you right now. And yet it's kept in heaven where it can't perish, it can't spoil, it can't fade, and you can't get at it to screw it up. Martin Luther famously called this an alien righteousness. And we don't mean Martians when we say that. What we mean is it's the righteousness of another person that was earned by another person that's given to you as a free gift. And therefore you can have a living hope, real hope. Because your hope is not based on, well, I've kept myself pretty pure till now, and I'm going to, darn it, I'm going to make it until I get married. That's not your hope. Your hope is that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. And God has already judged the life of Jesus and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you put your trust in him, that's what he says about you, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you're going to do. I know that seems too good to be true. That's why when Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, he expects people to say, Paul, if you tell people that, they're just going to run out and want to sin all the more. If people, if it doesn't sound that good, that it seems like it removes all fear from your life, it's not the free gospel. 
You've been given new birth because of his great mercy into a living hope because you have a righteousness that's kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. And this brings a perspective on everything that's remarkable. What he says here about suffering, he says in this in verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Like he doesn't think about trials the same anymore because he has a righteousness kept in heaven that he rejoices in. So it gives perspective. And honestly, honoring God sexually will bring suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's a suffering that doesn't even seem like suffering in light of what Jesus has done for us. But it's vital to rejoice in this. It's not enough for you just to say, okay, well, that's very interesting to know. Look what he says in verse 8 as we continue on with this passage, bringing this to a close here. In verse 8 of this first Peter passage. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Have you known that experience, not just to know about the gospel, but to have tasted it and the joy inexpressible? And I would say to you, that as, as broken as you may feel, as shameful as you may feel, to be able to run from that to Jesus and to sit in, in spite of everything that I know about me, he looks at me as perfectly righteous and beautiful in his sight. If that doesn't begin to fill your heart with joy, then you need to, you need to keep looking and keep praying that God would help you connect the dots. Rejoice in this. The key to feeling it is not just to get sort of a zap from heaven, but it's to sit in the truth of what he's done until it begins to melt your heart. To greatly rejoice because it's not enough just to know it in your head. We have to rejoice in what God has done and what he's given us. And finally, where the passage goes next is he talks about how it calls us to be holy. That the one who's done everything for us, calls us to live. But he doesn't call us to live in a way that, that makes us miserable. He calls us to live in a way that's freedom because it's what we were made for, to honor God and to love him. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me pray, and then we're going to break up. I would say like 10, 15 minutes. We'll have a few, a little time for Q&A. Yeah.